hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a terrific show for you today, and I want to update the listeners with some key events that happened. On uh, September 17th, the US FDA met uh, with the Vaccine and Biological Products Division with Pfizer to consider data on broad approval of the Pfizer vaccine for boosters in individuals who are already fully immunized with the Pfizer vaccine. There were presentations made by Pfizer uh, in a full advisory panel, but also from independent scientists that included Dr. Jessica Rose, Dr. Paul Alexander, Dr. Stephen Wiseman, and the leader of the the, um, COVID early treatment program, Mr. Steve Kirsch. Uh, These individuals, uh, many of them have appeared on the McCullery Report in the past. They presented and made a case that in individuals who receive the COVID-19 vaccines, that they are more likely to die of the vaccine than they are to acquire COVID and die of COVID. And shockingly, this was not challenged by anybody at the FDA or Pfizer. And I think these heroes changed the course of history where the FDA did not broadly approve boosters. Uh, Pfizer uh, in their plan on clinicaltrials.gov had to plan for many boosters with uh, periods of time far shorter than a year. Uh, this did not happen. And there was in concept approval for those over age 65, despite having no randomized data in those over 65, and despite having no efficacy data uh, that it was uh, supportive of doing it, that we, they relied on antibody data in younger people under age 65 to make this leap of faith that the boosters could help those over age 65, and then indicated that they would consider other groups at high risk for acquisition of COVID-19, not high risk for hospitalization and death, although those individuals were never uh, presented in any type of data for analyses. That being said, The proposal for universal boosters was a bust for Pfizer. It did not go through. And heroes, really scientific heroes, changed the course of history. Let's hope that these trends continue. The other update is that doctors in our circles that have been very um, eloquent with respect to analyzing the data on the effectiveness of early treatment on the issue of medical freedom, of people being able to make their choice with respect to the treatments they receive, including the vaccines, and those who've been fair on vaccine safety and efficacy are now making it into public life. Dr. Joe Ladapo from UCLA has been named the Surgeon General of Florida. Dr. Ryan Cole, who is uh, well known as a pathologist uh, studying this issue and a real hero in COVID-19 has been named to a prominent post in public health in the state of Idaho. 
So we'll see the tables turning. These are two events where the tables are turning and uh, there's a great attempt to break this medical tyranny that we're seeing going on. And the medical tyranny now, uh, as I have alluded to in multiple occasions, is permeating down through medical societies and through hospital administrations. And I wanted to give you this update from the Stu Peters show on medical tyranny as Stu interviews an anonymous health system administrator. Let's listen. Well, our next guest is Steve. It's just Steve, no last name given, because that's the era that we're living in. It's very dangerous to hold an unapproved opinion in these times, and it can be nearly as dangerous for one's family members. Hold the wrong opinions and you can lose your friends, your job, your house, your life. So yes, we can hardly blame Steve for wanting to keep his last name anonymous. Anyway, Steve works in healthcare administration and his wife is a doctor. In the past week, Steve has received three emails from the American Board of Family Medicine, the American Board of Internal Medicine, and the American Board of Pediatrics. Each of these emails states unequivocally that doctors should not be prescribing the drugs ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for coronavirus patients. Now, a lot of doctors believe pretty sincerely that these drugs can be helpful for coronavirus patients. At a minimum, they're both extensively tested drugs that are very unlikely to cause harm if prescribed in the right amounts. It doesn't matter. Doctors in Steve's hospital are being prohibited from prescribing either drug. He says that if they defy that order, they could be putting their medical licenses at risk and by extension, their very livelihoods. Steve's message shows just how remarkably dangerous it is these days for a medical professional to voice an alternative perspective, but Steve is a brave person and he believes the well-being of the public outweighs his own personal safety and I'm very glad to have him on today. Steve joins us now. Uh, I understand your anonymity request and we're gonna honor that. So you work in healthcare administration, you've received these letters. Take us through this. So HCQ and ivermectin specifically banned. Doctors can't prescribe treatment that they feel would best suit their patients. That's right, Stu. We're seeing that both in the, in writing from the uh, Federation of State Medical Boards, which govern medical boards in each of our states, uh, which is where physicians' licenses are held uh, or revoked um, across the country. And so they've said that spreading any misinformation or disinformation is ground for suspension or revocation of the medical license. Um, health systems are struggling financially when they struggle financially. Oftentimes the virtuous cycle gets replaced with a vicious one. And today the vicious economic cycle forces uh, our health systems to sort of toe the line because we're seeing it from Washington and everywhere else. Um, and so in addition to boards uh, threatening physician licensure, which is their linchpin to their livelihood, uh, we're also seeing uh, that come from the health systems as well because uh, DC has said this isn't safe. So in looking at the letter, the issuer of this letter doesn't seem to really want to nail down what specifically they define as mis or disinformation. How dangerous is that? Exactly. I mean, being specifically vague doesn't help anyone, right? But it leaves them open for uh, lots of latitude on how they want to determine whether you're, provide, you're providing care within their supposed guidelines. Of course, they will always change. So it's hard to put that down on the same token to say, you spread misinformation or disinformation with no definition. But if you do that, you will be up for revocation or suspension of your license and you'll be out of practice. Well, this is a way that they can just blanket target everybody 
that they just don't like, if they don't respect your political opinion, if they don't believe that you should have the right to make choices after your own health on your own or what's best for your family after the research that you've done, personal accounts, things that you've witnessed, things in the news, uh, that they could just target anybody that they want to. So the ban on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, in your opinion, is that going to cause a lot of death? Absolutely. I think we know, we've seen lots of data that suggests there's lots of potential benefit and sort of documented benefit, but there also is also documented very little harm or risk, but it's been silenced. Um, we do know of physicians uh, who are actually actively under investigation by the board uh, for having prescribed ivermectin, um, and that's, uh, that's really a disservice. Now that physician and others like that person are now uh, really sitting with, uh, you know, a gag order on them and they're ability to practice is hindered because they've got someone looking over their shoulder every second of the day. They can't do what they think is in the best interest of their patient, which is really the ethics of medicine, right? First, do no harm. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, Steve. Uh, a doctor who prescribed what they thought was best for their patient in accordance with their Hippocratic Oath prescribed ivermectin. That doctor has now been warned or advised that disciplinary action is imminent and they have been gagged prohibited from telling anybody about this right so they're they're under uh, investigation by the board they're having to take lots of spare time that they have which of course they don't have to prepare their position statement to defend themselves back to the board uh, on their use of that medication and it's totally appropriate that they chose to do that uh, that's really been uh, their oath to do the best for their patients, and they have the prescribing authority to do so, or at least they did. And then now when you see that the uh, language in these uh, documents says, if you spread misinformation, uh, which, of course, talking about ivermectin as a possible source of, of uh, success for you if you become COVID positive or want to prevent, uh, would now be uh, up for disciplinary action, including suspension or revocation of your license. They were treated as unethical or unprofessional conduct. So you're a hospital, you work in hospital administration or healthcare administration. Uh, so specifically, you manage the goings on the business side of healthcare. Is that correct? Is that an accurate statement? Correct. I've spent the last uh, three decades of my life running physician practices and uh, hospital practices uh, as well. Okay. So from an administrator's perspective, can you tell me why do you think it is that a Nobel Prize winning, FDA approved, tried and proven COVID killer would be taken away from the toolbox or the weaponry or the arsenal that doctors are armed with to treat patients on a case-by-case -case basis. I'm not saying that ivermectin is a blanket protocol for everyone, but certainly doctors should be able to go into their toolbox and access it if they feel that it's going to save their life. From, a, from an admin perspective, is that what we're looking at? Is this a bottom line issue? This one's really a complex one, I'm sure, behind the scenes. I can speak from sort of running the business. And last year was an incredibly challenging year when COVID hit. Uh, hospitals and clinics' ability to see patients were dramatically reduced. Uh, so revenue streams go down, costs continue, uh, big financial losses accrue. Uh, everyone in the business, honestly, is so busy. Physicians are so busy in their work, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, that honestly, they don't have time to do much more homework. Sometimes what they're being told by the system as the science they're following is what they honestly will follow because they believe it's true. Uh, and not because they have bad intent, they're just flat swamped. 
there are others who actually believe it's true. They believe it actually would provide value and they're being prevented from, from prescribing it. And uh, sometimes that's maybe a health system or an employer that says that's not a, a product we're going to use. Or now it looks like it's the boards of medical practice who are saying that's not safe, that's not appropriate for you to use that. I think it's unfortunate. So when you go to and you, and you flip on the news and you watch Fox, for example, the propaganda machine that they have become, and maybe you catch a clip of Hannity, the 24-hour vaccine infomercial that he has become, and he's saying things like safe and effective, or he's saying something like go ask your doctor. Consult with your doctor could now actually be a dangerous thing to do because they've been gagged from telling the truth and threatened with the licensure that they hold if they do tell the truth. So really what you're telling me is that doctors have become walking zombies with stethoscopes that they're propagandists by every definition and they're not telling the truth to their patients because they can't or they will lose everything that they've ever worked for. Well, I wanted to jump into a quick update on the... Um vaccines uh, for a minute and just bring you some uh, information from the popular uh, media. And many of you know uh, media mogul Nicki Minaj. And Nicki Minaj had a relative in the Caribbean who took the vaccine and then developed uh, orchitis or inflammation of the testicles. And Nicki Minaj was absolutely castigated in the major media uh, as being someone who's negative on the vaccines, just raising the safety issue. So I wanted to point out that Chen and colleagues in 2020 from Wuhan, China, reported on patients with the infection, SARS-CoV-2, the infection, COVID-19, which is very similar to the syndrome that patients get after they get the vaccine, where in both the natural infection and the vaccine, uh, the human body does get exposed to the dangerous spike protein. And in this report from Chen et al., uh, from Wuhan, China, they reported on Chinese men who developed testicular inflammation called orchitis, individuals who had enough discomfort that were referred for ultrasound. They used an ultrasound definition to define orchitis, which uh, appeared to be quite standard. And they found that 22.5% of those referred for ultrasound indeed met a definition of orchitis. So, uh, I think Nicki Minaj was on the right track that the vaccine uh, clearly could have done this and that we have uh, evidence that uh, we should be wary of complaints. We should not be dismissive of any complaint after the vaccine. That's the conservative and safe thing to do. Uh, a few more analyses that have weighed in that have been, I think, very uh, influential. Uh, in terms of safety, an analysis by Kostoff et al., uh, and uh, I will provide these links uh, to the program, uh, demonstrated that mortality at any age group with the vaccine is higher than taking your chances without the vaccine and getting the respiratory infection and hopefully getting early treatment. Uh, but even without early treatment, the chances of death with the natural respiratory infection are lower than that of chances of death with the vaccine. Part of this is determinism, meaning that when one takes the vaccine, there's a 100% chance you have the vaccine in your body. If you take the chances of not taking the vaccine, it's not 100% that you'll come in, uh, in contact with COVID-19. In fact, the, uh, a very small chance that anybody statistically actually comes in contact with the virus. So the analysis by Kostoff and colleagues supports uh, Mr. Steve Kirsch and the scientists at the September 17th FDA meeting on Pfizer boosters, which did not 
approved the boosters broadly. Another analysis by Hogue and colleagues from the University of California at Davis demonstrated that with the messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, the chances of a young person being hospitalized with vaccine-induced myocarditis or heart inflammation was 2 to 3.5 times higher than a young person being hospitalized with COVID-19. So this gives more information supporting the idea that the risks for myocarditis and the risks for death with the vaccine are higher than just simply taking your chances with having respiratory illness with COVID-19. Now, we have uh, two additional pieces of data that I wanted to uh, bring in, and they deal with this issue of who's being hospitalized with COVID-19. There have been uh, a multitude of claims that the majority of people in the U.S. hospitals now with COVID-19 are the unvaccinated, a multitude of complaint, of um, statements, even up to 99%. Well, I wanted to let you know that the CDC has a variety of uh, what we call asymmetric and biased strategies to um, uh, suppress the reporting of vaccine failures and overrepresent those who are unvaccinated. So the first, the CDC, as of May 1st, does not uh, re uh, systematically report vaccine breakthroughs because they were overwhelmed with so many in the spring. And that's with the legacy variants where the vaccines were better attuned to. But additionally, the CDC has, uh, has official statements on their website discouraging testing of uh, the PCR test or the antigen test in those who have been vaccinated. So we know hospitals have taken this up. And for instance, patients coming in for other problems who've been vaccinated do not undergo COVID-19 testing, but if someone came in for another problem and they were unvaccinated, they would get a test. And so there's an opportunity for a false positive in that person trumping up the case count. We also know that the cycle threshold desired by the CDC is less than 25 for those who are vaccinated. So it means really a higher standard, if you will, for those who are vaccinated. However, uh, cycle thresholds at a higher level would be accepted for an unvaccinated, meaning a lower bar to detect COVID-19 in the unvaccinated. These all work systematically to um, suppress the reporting of vaccine failure and overrepresent COVID-19 in those who are in the hospital. And this is uh, supported by a paper by Fillmore and colleagues from the Veterans Administration, 47,742 admissions. And what they showed, uh, interestingly, is that 40% of people in the hospital with COVID-19 never had an oxygen saturation that dipped below 94%. This is stunning in the VA. And it does point to the fact, like this hospital administrator just alluded to, that there is a real soft spot for admitting patients with COVID-19 to the hospital. They're not sick enough to, to have hypoxemia or a low oxygen saturation. And so it means many patients are in the hospital. They're clearly not on the mechanical ventilator. They are clearly not uh, sick and requiring high levels of oxygen support for hypoxemia. And so there is a trumping up of the numbers of patients in the hospital. And this paper by Fillmore and colleagues supports it. Fillmore also teaches us another important point that um, they have data uh, that is shading in over the Delta 
pandemic, so the Delta outbreak really evolved in June, July, August, and now September, where it rapidly filled into 99% of cases. We know the vaccines don't completely cover the Delta variant. And what uh, Fillmore found is that even if we count some of the earlier months, 23% of those in VA hospitals with COVID-19 are vaccinated, 23%. And that supports the data from Havers and colleagues from the COVIDnet network, the CDC network of hospitals that do voluntarily report. It's not all the hospitals, but it's a representative sample. And Havers in the month of June also found that 23% of Americans in the hospital were partially or fully vaccinated. So I want the listeners to understand that the talking point of a crisis of the unvaccinated or 99% unvaccinated in the hospital is simply not true. The literature suggests that's not the case. Now, to be fair, still the majority, 77% as of June, were unvaccinated in the hospital and they could have acquired the infection from a vaccinated or unvaccinated individual. Those individuals in the hospital, uh, without exception, are not receiving comprehensive early ambulatory treatment. These hospitalizations, a huge fraction of them, 85% are avoidable with sequential early ambulatory treatment. Very high risk patients should be receiving monoclonal antibodies and then move into a sequence of drugs. Those without monoclonal antibodies should be receiving hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin with doxycycline or azithromycin, followed by inhaled budesonide oral prednisone, oral colchicine, the use of full-dose aspirin. I was updated by Italian colleagues. Now are using double-dose aspirin, so they're using greater than 650 milligrams a day, given the tremendous blood clotting effects of the virus. And then patients who have low oxygen saturations, that's micro blood clots in the lungs. That's not uh, the virus itself. It's micro blood clots. That's a strong call to action for subcutaneous low molecular heparin, anoxaparin, one milligram per kilogram subcutaneous every 12 hours, or the use of novel oral anticoagulants. They are apixaban, rivaroxaban, dabigatran, and edoxaban. They can all be used orally to uh, work as blood thinners. And this is what's called standard sequence multidrug therapy to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. So on to some uh, good news on treatment updates, and I've mentioned it before, but I wanted to bring it to your uh, attention that we uh, have data from Chowdhury et al. Chowdhury et al. Uh, in January of 2021, a randomized trial of 606 uh, healthcare workers at very high risk in contact with COVID-19, and the intervention was dilute povidone iodine or betadine. This is the brown solution used to sterilize wounds that you see in the emergency room. Uh, it is an iodine-containing solution. Just a 1% dilution. We're talking about a drop in a small glass of water. That's really what it is, a 1% solution used as a, a mouthwash and gargle, spit out a nose spray, and then snort out, and then uh, even used as eye drops and then clear out of the eyes. It basically kills SARS-CoV-2 on contact, uh, is strongly virucidal, and uh, in this randomized trial, it markedly reduced, markedly, far more than half or greater, the number of infections of COVID-19 or even turning test positive. So 
and this is supported by multiple other studies. We know that their virucidal compounds, just like the virus can be killed with multiple hand sanitizers, it can also be killed by multiple eye, eye, uh, um, nose and mouth washes. And so uh, povidone iodine, dilute povidone iodine has been tested at 1%, 5%, or 10%. I do think the more dilute, the better. It's safer. Don't swallow it. Those who are iodine sensitive can move on to equally dilute hydrogen peroxide, also sodium hypochlorite. Uh, and again, very dilute. A couple drops in a glass of uh, water is all we need. And you can pitch it out after that. I think the mouth can always be additionally cleansed with scope or Listerine. That is also mildly virucidal. And then you can move on. This twice daily, daily prophylaxis is a proven approach. It's done in big cities all over the, the, the world. America needs to get with this program. And additionally, uh, if one is exposed to COVID-19 or actively has COVID-19, we actually are using it as part of a program to reduce the viral load and doing it four times a day because we know the Delta variant exists in the nose and mouth at you know, 251 to 1,000 fold higher concentration than those who um, uh, are from the unvaccinated uh, era. Uh, the high concentrations of virus in the nose and mouth have been specifically demonstrated in the vaccinated. We don't know if that's the same is true in the unvaccinated, but it may very well be. So I wanted to bring that to your attention. And uh, finally, the good news is on natural immunity. And what we know there is a scientific reporter, um, Jennifer Block, has uh, it published in the Br British Medical Journal now a summary of 20 separate studies uh, demonstrating the durability of natural immunity. And this is very important. It's uh, durable, it's robust, and it's complete. Natural immunity involves a full library of antibodies against the spike protein, the nucleocapsid. Remember, the vaccine only covers the older extinct spike protein. Uh, we know natural immunity covers uh, immunity to whatever variant has been encountered on the spike protein, but also the nucleocapsid, which remains stable across multiple strains, uh, as well as other antigenic targets. We have full uh, T helper, uh, uh, T presenting cells, uh, as well as natural killer cells that are activated. We can prove this with what's called the T-detect test, T-detect test, that looks for minor chromosomal arrangements in the T cells that recognize SARS-CoV-2 and it's permanent. I just got a message from a patient where, you know, 18 months now the t after the infection, the T-detect test is positive. We think it's actually a permanent change in the chromosomes uh, recognizing uh, permanent immunity to SARS-CoV-2. And the antibodies that one can get through a conventional laboratory are strongly uh, positive uh, in patients who have had very severe infection in the ICU. And if one has had an infection at home and not been hospitalized, but can hit a positive result on Abbott, Roche, Quest Diagnostics, LabCorp, or orthoclinical diagnostics, uh, one doesn't need the T-detect. Again, you have proof of immunity. So we look at it the following way. If one has had a clear-cut infection of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, positive PCR antigen test, you're done. You have a solid case. You don't need to prove your immunity. If you didn't have a test early on, 
or you are suspicious you were exposed, but you just never got the diagnosis nailed down, then get an antibody test. If an antibody test, one of the major manufacturers is positive, you have immunity, but the antibodies will wane in everybody and ultimately go away as they do with the vaccine rapidly. We know that um, if the T detect test is positive, that that should be permanent and that's your backstop for uh, proof, if you will, of immunity. Now, uh, people have been vaccinated have asked, well, how can I prove if my vaccine still has effects? We do have the ability to measure anti-spike protein antib uh, antibodies now through conventional laboratory systems, and we can order that. Now, it's uh, these wane very quickly in a paper by Israel and colleagues. After vaccination, the antibodies drop off 40% per month, and so they quickly wane down to very low levels. And, uh, and I think that's the reason why Pfizer and so many other companies want to bring in uh, the boosters so quickly because of the waning uh, vaccine immunity. The vaccines have not been updated to the Delta variant, which is approximately 99% prevalent in the United States. And so the vaccines not only do not have uh, broad immunity uh, with respect to a broad scale antibodies, uh, they don't have uh, evidence for robust T cell immunity and they are coded against now the wrong spike protein. And then finally, the antibodies drop off precipitously from a very high level uh, as shown in the paper by Israel and colleagues. But getting back to the block, uh, Jennifer Block paper, 20 studies supporting natural immunity. And she memorializes the data from Cleveland Clinic by Shretha and colleagues, which demonstrated uh, in a large number of Cleveland Clinic employees who were naturally immune, who didn't take the vaccine, they went back to work and there wasn't a single case of COVID-19. The Cleveland Clinic had announced based on that data that they were not gonna have a vaccine mandate. In fact, the CEO had announced that there was gonna be a worker shortage if health systems had mandates on COVID-19 vaccines. And in a rapid uh, turn of events, the Cleveland Clinic almost on a dime reversed all their stances. They withdrew the Shretha paper out of preprint, which actually had the data, and then announced they were going to have a vaccine mandate like so many other health systems. And one has to wonder what caused the change of heart uh, in the Cleveland Clinic or who externally influenced them. But fortunately, the block paper did capture the findings by Shretha, and that's now in the British Medical Journal permanently so we have that as one of 20 citations. Uh, in the McCullough Report, in a prior version, I summarize a popular issue that everybody wants to know about, and that's about what happens and if a naturally immune person takes the vaccine and uh, the papers are raw, crammer, and methodius that are listed in the McCullough Report, all showing excess harm if one takes the COVID-19 vaccine and they are uh, naturally immune from a prior infection. We can now add to that a paper by Monforte from Milan, which showed in healthcare workers mean age of 48, that indeed those who took the COVID-19 again had higher rates of adverse reactions and severe systemic adverse reactions. So I have to be very, very strong on this. Those of you who have natural immunity from COVID-19 under no circumstances should you take the vaccine. There is no opportunity for benefit. You can't get COVID-19 a second time in any meaningful way. And so taking the vaccine, it cannot help you. And medically, it can only hurt you as now shown in four papers. 
And in my view, uh, natural immunity for COVID-19 is the strongest reason to be exempt or to be uh, uh, be able to defer or decline the COVID-19 vaccine without any uh, social employment or educational consequences. So stick up for your natural immunity. Natural immunity, by the way, is the way out of this problem since the vaccines don't work in everyone. So what happens when someone has taken the vaccine and they get COVID-19? They need to ultimately have natural immunity to you know, be free of COVID-19 in the future. I've just had a patient in my practice who was fully vaccinated, went ahead and took a booster uh, uh, shot, even though it wasn't FDA approved. By the way, the pharmacies will administer a booster without any question, even if it's not approved. My patient went ahead and did that. And then after fully immunized with a booster about a month later, contracted COVID-19 and had to go through all the forms of early treatment. In Israel, the experience is the same. The booster program is failing because the vaccines don't code to cover the Delta variant, which is 99% of what we have. Well, we have a terrific program this week, and I've invited to the show two early doctors in the uh, medical treatment of COVID-19, two innovators, and it's wonderful to have them on the show. I have Dr. Richard Urso from Houston, and Dr. Urso is an ophthalmologist, but he's done a tremendous amount of research with early treatments for COVID-19. He's an expert in hydroxychloroquine since uh, ophthalmologists routinely do annual evaluations of those on hydroxychloroquine for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Uh, he also has led the development of a new uh, uh, consortium or a new uh, galvanized group of doctors dedicated towards early treatment called the Pandemic uh, uh, Health Response. And he's going to give a lot more information about that. And then finally, I have Dr. Yvette Lozano. And Dr. Lozano is here in Dallas, Texas. She's run a dedicated outpatient clinic for the treatment of COVID-19, she picked up the load where the major medical centers in Dallas uh, did not do anything for outpatients with COVID-19. Um, Yvette ran uh, a dual uh, hallways with treatment rooms, oxygen concentrators, medication set up. She has pictures of patients waiting on sidewalks for blocks waiting to see her. Uh, she's treated an enormous number of patients and has a great experience. And I've invited Yvette to the show specifically to give us her insights on the issue of diabetes and hyperglycemia and why this matters in COVID-19 and how diet and sometimes glucose-lowering medications can make a difference in the active treatment of COVID-19. What happens to patients' body weight and how do they see their way out of this problem? So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. You know, I just went to my doctor for my annual physical exam, and I really like his approach. He does comprehensive laboratories, some of which actually given a report on how my body is responding to vitamins. And I got some tips from him about what I need to do with nutraceutical supplements and vitamins, which can play a role in health and prevention of disease. And I can tell you, I think one of the most terrific products on the market is Healthy Cell. 
This, uh, this is a vitamin preparation that is in a gel pack that's easy to use before exercise. It's easy to use on the go. I rely on it every day. A healthy cell super immune boost has in it just what we need to help us as a base through the COVID-19 Delta outbreak. Healthy cell immune boost. Look for it on uh, online and you can go to healthycell.com and use the code OUTLOUD in order to get 20% off your first order. So look to Healthy Cell, Super Immune Boost, gel form vitamins uh, to supplement your program. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show, for the first time, Dr. Richard Urso. Dr. Urso went to undergraduate at the University of Connecticut, and then he attended the University of Texas Houston School of Medicine, now known as McGovern School of Medicine, and on the campus of the Texas Medical Center. He went on to do an ophthalmology residency, which is very competitive at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and then did a specialized uh, uh, training in orbital oncology. Richard has been one of the medical specialists who's really gone outside of his field in the crisis, in the response to the pandemic, uh, and innovated with early treatment for COVID-19. And I give him credit. He's probably among the very first uh, innovators in Texas, in the United States, in treating COVID-19. And I brought him on the show because I want him to give some insights on quickly what he's learned on treating COVID-19 as an outpatient, and then introduce a, a brand new organization called the Pandemic Health Alliance. Richard, thank you for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's such a great time to be here. And it's been a really interesting year and a half, you know, um, as you said, I trained ophthalmology, but I actually did a lot of work in uh, uh, scarring, inflammation, and wound healing, and actually invented uh, a wound healing drug that's FDA approved. And I spent nine years doing it. And during that time, I learned a lot about inflammation at that time. So early on, when I, when I started going in, one of the things I was so excited about was how could we attack this thing? And as usual, most docs, we started collaborating together, we got together in February, started talking to people. Uh, Italy, South Korea, and other places. And it became quite clear to me that we weren't dealing with the usual virus. Uh, we had this thrombotic episode that was really a big part of the disease. And there was quite an inflammatory response, what we now call the cytokine storm. But at the time I knew there was lots of inflammation and lots of, um, and lots of uh, issues with, um, with thrombosis. So I started thinking back and, and I had done work with tumor viruses and they're a little different than upper respiratory viruses. But I knew that upper respiratory viruses uh, actually usually have a short life cycle. So I started thinking about this disease as an inflammatory disease after the first week. And as we talk about now, 
you and I have had conversations. It's a biphasic disease. It's an infectious disease early, and then it's an inflammatory disease late. So what, um, what I found was early on, I, I found that I could go back to my literature work that I had done on, on scarring and inflammation. And I immediately found um, one of the drugs that I was really familiar with was, was azithromycin. I had used it for scarring for a long time um, for topical usage on the eye. Um, and then the other thing that had come to my attention was another drug I had used on the eye, which was hydroxychloroquine. And, and of course we use steroids all the time. So basically uh, my very first patient in March, um, after getting a little bit of uh, literature search done and seeing that a, a, a crew in um, uh, France had started using these drugs, um, I decided to go ahead and put them to use and, and then eventually found about 10 different drugs that might be useful, but mostly because of the background I had in the, in the, in the tissue culture lab. So that, that's kind of how it all started out. And I felt like I had to speak out because as you know, no one else was. Well, what you had found is that so many in different clinics, different labs, different places in the world, they found that drugs used in combination to reduce viral replication, address inflammation, and then thrombosis uh, really was the key to treating outpatients with COVID-19. And so you've done a lot more uh, and gone well above uh, being an ophthalmologist, in a sense, a medical in medical uh, specialist in treating COVID-19. You've been a real leader. I know you and I uh, testified together in the Texas Senate. I was honored uh, with having you there uh, by my side. And now you have uh, moved really into a global role with the Pandemic Health Alliance. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, one of the things that we were, I thought we were maybe missing a little bit was uh, sort of a, a, a voice of doctors and data, a voice similar to what you'd expect the World Health Organization or CDC to be. So I tried to get together some of the people, um, as you know, uh, that were leaders in data science and leaders in, in the medical field that could actually put together true information for people. Because I felt like the, the message of fear always bothered me. You know, I, I, the way I usually would say to somebody is, we have this message that we want to deliver and we don't deliver it in the right way. We know this disease is bad. We know there's a lot of things that are happening that we're not, that we're not comfortable with. But let, let's talk about it like, how do we talk to a cancer patient who's a smoker that has cancer? We're kind, we're considerate, we lay out a plan, we're empathetic. And I wanted to sort of hopefully get an organization together that could deliver information without fear, without, <clears throat> without, um, hyperbole, and basically um, hopefully get the community united in a message of hope that we can tackle this pandemic. We know early treatment is very effective, and it was, as, as you said so succinctly at the, at the Texas Senate, um, it was like the, 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 I can't remember the words you used, but it was something along the lines of, why are we missing this whole thing? I mean, we have contagion control, we have vaccination, we have uh, prevention with vitamin D, and we don't talk about early treatment makes no sense. And so I thought this would be a great time to try to try to get out a good message. Eventually we pulled it together and now we've got an organization I think is gonna make some good impacts. Uh, we just recently went down to, we just recently went down to Puerto Rico and drew up a declaration, which we're gonna, I think really shock the world in terms of basically saying what we do as doctors involves primarily, first and foremost, the patient and the Hippocratic Oath. And we've got to return to those roots. And I think it's going to be really exciting for people to hear, hear what we have to say. And I know uh, <clears throat> you're, you're a big part of that. You're a huge part of it. Well, you know, medical schools, uh, large academic medical centers, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, they have no early treatment networks. 
Now we have treatment networks for acute myocardial infarction, treatment networks for diabetes, for cancer, uh, certainly for eye diseases, neurologic diseases. We have treatment networks for everything. There is no network that exists for early treatment. And I think under your leadership, uh, an umbrella organization that really can bring people together on early treatment is needed. Uh, There are other organizations out there trying to fill certain gaps and, uh, and we are going to need a coalition of organizations on a, a global scale. Dr. Tess Lowry from the UK, who I brought on the McCullough Report uh, in the past, uh, is trying to tabulate really the early treatment responses across the world. And they exist in Malaysia and Far East and Australia, across Central Europe. Uh, and it's been a grassroots effort. Now, for many of us, I can tell you personally, I think it's been one of the most gratifying things I've done in my career is to fill this uh, enormous need that was out there in public health. Yeah, and I think I I second that. You know, if we look, we've never seen a disease before that's been ignored uh, with early treatment. I've never seen it in my entire career. And so you're left with people like myself. I've treated almost a thousand patients now. I think it's 968 that are sick with COVID, not prophylaxed, sick with COVID. So people like myself and ENT docs and anesthesia docs, cardiologists, other people that wouldn't typically be in the front lines are in the front lines because somebody has to do it. And as you know, in this country, we probably only have four or 500 docs that are taking care of the whole country in COVID. So what's cool to, to know is that there are other places around the world that are looking to us and we're looking to them. I've learned a lot from overseas docs. Um, I learned quite a bit from doc in South Africa, I've learned from docs in India. Um, I've had uh, conversations with people in Brazil. And so this this exchange of information is so normal for doctors. It's what we do. It's it's our nature to share information to help heal patients. So to me, it feels so natural to be part of an organization. And really, I look at it as a shared organization. It's not my organization. It's an organization that's there for doctors to put together information that helps patients and, and helps the world get through this pandemic in real time with real data and true data. I think one of the most um, amazing things about COVID-19 as a brand new illness that came on the scenes, none of us were prepared for it. I think what's been amazing to me is innovation. And innovation comes from the most unexpected places. And in many ways, doctors in clinics, independent doctors who are faced with patient after patient after patient out of necessity uh, innovated. They innovated with drug combinations. They innovated with various different uh, methods in managing COVID-19. And many of the original observations that were made became confirmed in clinical trials. Uh, as an example, West Texas Maverick Richard Bartlett innovated with inhaled budesonide. And I remember him going on national TV and then people said immediately, oh, he's a snake oil salesman. Two randomized trials supporting the use of budesonide. As another example, the Greeks innovated with using colchicine, a gout drug uh, to treat COVID-19, that inflammatory phase. And again, they were thought, gosh, uh, how can these Greeks be right? Large clinical trial from Montreal Heart Institute, cold corona confirms the value of colchicine in treating COVID-19. So where do you see the Pandemic Health Alliance in terms of future innovation in COVID-19? So that's a great question. This is my favorite question, actually, because I think when I train residents, this is the thing I always tell them. I said, 
there's always a better mousetrap and there's always a better way. And I said, the enemy of good is better, but the enemy of better is good. So we've, we've known that in medicine forever. And, and so when I look at innovation, innovation is basically, you take the information that you have and you say, if you learn as much as you can about everything that has to be known about a disease, right? That's where you have to go first. That's the first place we all go. And secondly, you now have to take that information. As most people have said, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. So all the people who have trained us, all those wonderful people, like for me, people like Red Duke and, and DeBakey and Cooley, people that I was around in my early training, they had this imprint on me that I just feel like I had to help out in some ways. You felt the same way and many others. And we've reached out to each other. And so I hope this organization, in a sense, can continue to, to be a leader in helping us to, to resolve this pandemic. I, I do say this. It's clear that we have multiple, multiple agents that can be helpful. As you said, it's a multi-drug cocktail, sequential multi-drug cocktail. That's what we need to do. We know that works. The earlier we start, the better. The monoclonal antibodies are fabulous, and, and we've got to emphasize those. So we have all these wonderful things as we go forward. And I think the thing that we, the innovation here right now is to, is really along the lines of providing a fair, uh, a fair balanced voice. And, and, and that is the innovation here that I hope we can come to is that we can provide a fair balanced voice to the pandemic and give really true information again. And I think that's the whole thing that I hope, of course, the individuals of us are, are, are struggling to find new things because patients are dying right in front of our eyes. I mean, we're literally seeing, I have people calling me to every day. I'm an ophthalmologist. I saw probably 70 patients in my clinic today. I had another 15 people that I was dealing with and I'm getting about eight to, to eight to nine new COVID patients. It's so difficult. Uh, so anybody who's listening is so difficult to take care of these people. Um, they're not getting treatment and it's, it's just not fair. And I, 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 we can't stand by. I, I said to my family early on in the pandemic, I'm not going fishing, I'm going to help. And, uh, and I think many people, there's a good number around the world. And I'm seeing now that it's thousands that want to do the same thing. I completely agree. I've been on the job every day since the onset. And, um, and I think the, the most dedicated doctors have done as we have done. Dr. Urso, this has been a great interview. Thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. It's my great pleasure to invite to the show, Dr. Yvette Lozano. Dr. Lozano went to undergraduate at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, then attend medical school at the Texas Tech Health Science Center in Lubbock, Texas. She trained in general surgery at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, uh, and then had a career as a surgeon and changed to a medical doctor uh, as part of her career. And she does work as a general medical doctor and has become a leader in COVID-19, I can tell you, I learned in Dallas early from word of mouth that Dr. Yvette Lozano, ahead of all doctors in Dallas, had learned how to treat COVID-19. And so <laughs> I wanted her insights on the McCullough Report. Dr. Lozano, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. appreciate you having me. Now, you've made a specific observation I want you to tell the listeners about with respect to uh, obesity, diabetes, and the emergence of hyperglycemia or an elevated blood sugar and what that means in acute ambulatory COVID-19. So take it away. So I think that's exactly right. Uh, one of the things that I noticed really early in March of last year when I started treating patients is that all of the patients that were coming into the office that were positive for COVID-19, 
happened to be diabetics and about 75% of them had no clue. They were all just slightly overweight or morbidly overweight and all of them had positive diabetes on blood test. And so it took me about two weeks to correlate the fact that sugar was a very high affinity for COVID-19. And the assumption was if I could control the sugar, could I control the symptoms of COVID-19? And the answer was absolutely. And this was why I was so successful in treating patients that had COVID-19. Not only did we have appropriate use of hydroxychloroquine, which you know removed all of the symptoms immediately, but we could actually get these patients to go to a healthy state if we could get them to lower their sugar. And the key was keeping the sugar under 99. And a lot of these patients came in and required, you know, medication to do that. And then very quickly, we followed it up with diet and exercise. And so most of the patients came and were put on a very strict diet. They went on a zero carb, zero sugar diet. And we helped them. We told them exactly what to eat, how often to eat. And then we wanted to back that up with some exercise. And we needed to find something that they could do because their lungs were involved with COVID and they couldn't breathe. They were having hypoxia and, and severe uh, you know, it was almost like high altitude sickness. And so by using a recumbent exercise bicycle, we were able to get these patients to very quickly drop two to three pounds a day. You know, many patients dropping 40 to 60 pounds in a matter of weeks um, to not only transform themselves from being the victims of COVID-19, but being successful and victorious in getting rid of diabetes. You know, it's interesting that in acute illness, the drop in body weight is about 75% fat, 25% protein. And I've noticed that individuals actually really don't want to eat carbs when they have COVID-19. Uh, in fact, some of the best uh, approaches are to use protein supplementation in COVID-19. Now, hydroxychloroquine has an anti-diabetic effect itself, which is an advantage. What other drugs did you use to lower blood sugar? Well, so we were really, really good about lowering it with strict diet. And so we had a very high protein diet. There were a few patients that came in that were uncontrolled diabetics that had A1Cs in the 13, 14, and 15 ranges with blood glucoses as high as 350. And those patients, obviously, we supplemented those patients with medications that are appropriate for diabetes, such as metformin and glipperide. But very rarely did we have to do that. And on those patients, they recovered very quickly to a point where their sugars were so low that we actually had to discontinue medication. Well, that's astounding. And I give you credit for innovating on the aspect of exercise. I've incorporated that in my practice. As long as patients don't have a fever, I want them out of doors, fresh air. Uh, even if they need an oxygen concentrator, I've had them on an exercise bike at home, uh, people in my circles uh, that I've counseled. And one of the things I've observed is even if the oxygen saturations are low at home, it's just like high altitude sickness. You're right. It's actually the hypoxemia is much better tolerated in COVID-19 than it is with consolidative pneumonias or with heart failure. And if those who get some exercise, the way I explain it to them, they actually get blood flow through the lungs. And because there's microthrombosis, they will actually have sustained improvements in oxygen saturation after a bout of exercise. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I don't think that this is COVID, uh, COVID pneumonia. I actually think that this is high altitude sickness and they do recover. And the lower that you get the sugar, the higher that their oxygen saturation occurs. And we've had patients that have been on these recumbent bicycles that have called me and said, Dr. Lozano, my sugar's down in the eighties and seventies. And now my oxygen's 95, 98. And they're then at that point able to get off these supplemental oxygens. You know, as a biologic corollary, uh, Dr. David Scheim, who's been on the McCullough Report, former NIH researcher, has shown that the spike protein of the virus attaches to sialic acid residues on the red blood cells, 
Remember, glycohemoglobin is actually glycosylated hemoglobin within red blood cells. It's conceivable that COVID-19, the virus, does target those glycosylated red blood cells uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, somehow creates more hemagglutination or more virulent disease in those who have hyperglycemia and diabetes. It's a very consistent observation across the board. What do you think about the idea of people losing weight and getting fit uh, in order to survive COVID-19 if it strikes? So one of the things that I will tell you, Peter, is that in the time that we've been in the office, none, neither myself nor my staff has contracted COVID-19 or the Delta. And one of the things that we're very strict about is that we do not come into the office until our blood sugars are less than 99. I actually believe that it's a great way of preventing getting infected by Delta, COVID-19, or any of the other variants that might come our way. If you focus on your health and you get your sugar let down under 99, the chances of you getting infected are very, very slim. Again, 95% of all the patients that have walked into my office, and we've seen about 1,700 patients and treated them all successfully with hydroxychloroquine and diet. It's, it's a combination together. It's not one or the other. It's both. But these patients do really, really well when we keep their sugars down. So I'm hypothesizing if I can get people to lower their sugars less than 99, to stop eating sugar in their diet, to do a more healthy protein-based diet, they're going to have a great prevention against getting infected by this virus. Well, as a reference point, you know, normal blood sugar is between 60 and 100, uh, that we hit over 126 fasting. Most of these people COVID-19 in a sense are effectively fasting. Over 126 defines diabetes or hemoglobin A1C over 6.5%. 6 and I'm not surprised that your estimate of 75% of acute COVID-19 patients have uh, either known or incipient diabetes. Um, I think we've learned a lot from this interview today. Those of you out there, let's get the sugar out of the diet. Let's get the starch out of the diet. Let's have healthy sources of protein, fresh fruits and vegetables. Let's lean our bodies down, get fit. And if COVID-19 strikes, we can survive it. Those of you who survived COVID-19, let's not go back to old habits. Let's stay on a healthy diet and keep our, our families and our loved ones uh, also equally healthy because we don't want to end up with diabetes. It's something that about 90% of type 2 diabetes is completely preventable. Dr. Lozano, do you have any other further words of wisdom for our audience? Do you know, I will tell you that a lot of my patients will come back and say that the best thing that ever happened to them was getting COVID-19 because what the devil meant for evil, God is going to use for good. And they've gone to a healthy lifestyle and they've gotten rid of all of their diseases because of the sudden weight loss and the change in diet and exercise. Well, let be that be the last word. Thank you for joining us on the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.